0: I'm Andrew Constantine, and this is A Stick With A Point. Hello everyone, and welcome to the podcast. Since 1970, one of the most respected and successful recording engineers has been capturing some of the greatest musical performances by world-renowned artists, for the rest of us, to enjoy. In our chat, we discussed what drew him to the business, how he maintains his enthusiasm, and also the things that have changed along this journey. So I'm joined today by Simon Eden, and Simon is one of the most highly regarded sound engineers, recording engineers, that I think I've ever come across. So Simon, welcome. Thanks for being with me.
1: Thank you for inviting me. Thank you.
0: Hey, now, apart from the obvious, can you tell me really what is the role of a recording engineer on a classical recording?
1: Uh, quite multi-layered, I think the answer is. Uh, to a certain extent, you don't want to know that a recording engineer has been involved in the recording. In other words, my part should be completely transparent. So I'm presenting the musician musicians orchestra or whatever with no sort of barrier as it were between them in the studio and you listening on headphones or on loudspeakers in, in a listening room so I think that's the first thing one wants to retain a sort of anonymity although I' I'm told people can recognize my recordings um, I suppose a, a bit like a, a brush stroke from you know, a painter you, you sort of you can work out the style um, So I think that's my first uh, goal. Um, You've also got to be a bit of a diplomat uh, because you are liaising with a record producer uh, and of course the musicians themselves and it's a bit like choosing a photograph of yourself. Quite often the one that you think represents you isn't actually the one that's the truthful representation of you Uh, and it's just trying to persuade musicians. Uh, well, sometimes they don't need persuading at all, but you know, this is the best way that you sound, and this is a truthful and accurate representation of how you sound. Um, and the other thing which I think is equally uh, important, even in your 60s, I'm just about still in my 60s, you're still happy to make cups of tea and coffee for people. Uh, you know, you, that, That's a skill which lasts you for life. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I love that. I love that the diplomatic aspect
1: of, of what you're talking about, and yeah, it's, just, it's interpersonal one skills more aspect, um, which uh, I think has only come into play two or three times in in gosh a fifty year career, is and that is being able to sit in as producer. Occasionally, a producer will fall ill, and uh, which happened, uh, funny enough, in Cardiff not that long ago. Um and you've got to then sit in his chair and start telling the musicians, well, that wasn't together. This wasn't in tune here. So you've got to be very much, uh, you know, not bipolar, but I mean, you've got to be able to do both jobs. And of course, it's not a job that a producer necessarily can do if if I were the person who had to leave the session, uh, they may not be able to do my job. But it's quite an important job. And it's also the reason why it's important on big sessions to have two engineers, uh, an assistant there, who can step into my shoes if something horrendous mm-hmm. happened. Mm-hmm.
0: You're talking about people recognising your recordings, your sound or, or whatever, which is um, um, wonderfully flattering on the one hand. But as you said, you don't want to get between the musicians and what they're trying to present. Uh, so how would you define...
1: A bad recording? Um, oh, gosh. I suppose a bad recording, it's, it won't sit naturally. Um, it, it will either sound too close, too distant, too airy, too dry. And, of course, we're into the realms of personal taste here. Um, and I think a lot of the, um, the way I work was founded, really, when I worked at Deco. Um, They liked an open sound, uh, a connecting sound. So you actually felt some sort of link with the musicians rather than just looking at them through a a glass darkly. Um, So there's there's very much that aspect of it. Um, And one great thing we did at Deco at the beginning of every session, uh, when we were getting the sound, we would turn the speakers down to a very quiet level. We, we used to call it granny's level because old people, of which I'm now one, you know, everything was always too loud. You know, your grandmother would say, oh, turn it down, turn it down. And actually, when you listen to the sound turned down, when the speaker is not working at its full efficiency, you get a much better idea of the presence of the sound and the reverberation around the sound. Everything sounds wonderful turned up loud, that the worst recordings on earth will sound fantastic if you turn them up loud. Your ears saturate, the room that you're listening in saturates with sound, and it's great. But if it can sound with impact uh, and, and balance at a low level, then it's going to sound even more fantastic when you turn the volume up.
0: Wow, I'd never thought of it in those terms. That's, that's tremendous. I'm diving in with your recording expertise, though, but I want to go back, if we can, and I want to ask you about your early years. I and mean, you've already said you've been doing this 50 years or whatever. But what or who directed you towards
1: recording? It was a complete fluke. Uh, I left school in 1969, and I wanted to go into film production. And here in the UK, film production was going through a pretty grim time. Um, and I was given uh, an introduction to uh, Brian Forbes, um, who, you know, famous actor and director. And even he, you know, th- there were no strings that he could pull. And my father, who served in the Second World War, had a chum of his who worked for DECA Radar. Uh, DECA was quite a big company. They made televisions, radiograms. Uh, they had recording studios, a record pressing plant, and the Decca navigator system. And I went along and met him for lunch and uh, we chatted away. And he said, well, you're obviously interested in classical music and recording. Uh, He said, you don't have any qualifications that that would be useful for us to employ you here. Um, Would you like an interview at the recording studios in Broadhurst Gardens? Uh, And I said, gosh, well, that that would be wonderful. And I was taken on for six months uh, on on a probationary sort of uh, period. Um, It was £12 a week. I seem to remember my salary then. (laughs) Um, And I think in that six months, you either fitted in or you didn't. Anyway, luckily, it all sort of meshed together. And from there, I worked in the duplicating department because all our LPs were cut in the different territories. So if you were in France um, buying a Decca record, it would have been cut locally and pressed locally in France or Italy or Japan. The only country with that, uh, with uh, exception to that, was the United States. Uh, And all those records were pressed in the factory at New Malden, Um, but they had the London record label on them because during the war Decca had to sell well, I think all uh, British companies had to sell their assets abroad, um, so Decker sold decker in the United States, so after the war we we couldn't use the name decker. It was owned by somebody else Wow, um, that's
0: intriguing i'd never I'd never heard that story at all that, uh, would be that news um, all, to everybody over here
1: yeah all, all those uh, American Uh, london recordings were pressed in the uk and yet there would be record collectors in the states who would write to the uk and demand to have one with a Decca label on it because they thought that was going to be better than the ones pressed with the london label on but they were absolutely identical i can assure you oh
0: the cat's out of the bag (laughs) finally (laughs) yeah well that's where you began in the industry, but what about your, your, um, your interest in music? Where, where does that come from?
1: I, uh, I started learning the piano when I was quite young. I was clearly not going to be a, a great instrumentalist or, or musician uh, or performer, I suppose is the word, that really I'm looking for. But I enjoy playing the piano. Somewhere I must have heard an organ because I thought that's the instrument I really want to play. And it wasn't until I went to my secondary school that, um, that I was then there was a decent instrument to learn on. Um, I sang in school choirs, so I've always been active as a musician, even though very definitely an amateur one. Um, and I think my parents, there was classical music in the house with them, although there was a lot of other music besides um, jazz uh, and sort of pop music of the day. Um, But it's just something which resonated with me and and I was really, I really loved.
0: But what about for people going into the business today? You obviously learned on the job, as it were. Um, Is that what happens for for young sound engineers?
1: I think it's harder today um, because companies don't have their own in-house engineers anymore. Um, those days are gone when when DECA had their own engineers or, or CBS, uh, EMI, you know, they're, they're, that that's no longer the case. And really, the way to get on is to join a, a good course. In, in the United Kingdom, there's Surrey University, uh, which has a, a tremendous sound course and is really thorough. I mean, you get a, a good grounding in everything. Um, And I think there's one in Leeds, which is highly thought of, and further afield in in Germany, there's a very good course at Detmold. Um, So I think that's what you have to do. And the Surrey course, for instance, is a four year course. The third year, you're put on work placement. And if you're lucky enough, you will end up at Abbey Road Studios or with a company like Floating Earth. Uh, which does a lot of work in, in the UK, and, and very wide-ranging work, not just classical music. They do uh, the Brit Awards, things like this. So you'll, you get an even more enhanced view of, of what there is out there.
0: So the years with Decca, you were an, as you called it, in-house um, recording engineer with them. Uh, they must have been, in some sense, glory years, can you tell us how Decca worked and some of the projects that you remember from that time?
1: Yes, I I, mean, I think it, it was the glorious. Uh, certainly, in looking back on it now, I mean, it definitely was. Uh, money didn't seem to be an object. You know, we were never looking at budgets all the time. Um, things just seemed to happen. I don't know where the money came from, um, and one was really lucky because you worked with world-class artists. Uh, which, of course, makes my job a lot easier. Um, if you're uh, you know, recording violinists like Kim Wah Chung, she's got a, a, she can play, B, she's got the most incredible Stradivarius violin or whatever. So suddenly the, the sound is made for you. Um, so that was a huge privilege. And, yeah, there were some uh, wonderful artists. One worked with singers. Decker would record four operas a year, typically. Wow. Well, I mean, that's just mm-hmm. out of the question now. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a great, yeah, I keep using the word privilege, but it, it's true, working with people like Pavarotti, Sutherland, um, Domingo, uh, you know, all the sort of big names of opera from from the 60s, 70s uh, and into the 80s. Um,
0: and were there big personalities in the recording booth as well? I mean, you were there as the engineer. Were there, were there some of these... Um, infamous or famous um
1: producers working alongside you there there were i'm not sure that i mean i think like me i hope that they well they did they maintained a, a diplomatic sort of uh, a, attachment with the artists uh, because sometimes they would have to tell them things which perhaps the artists didn't want to hear um and the problem with People like Pavarotti, he always complained that he could never hear enough of himself. Uh, And it was very difficult trying to persuade him that there really was enough of himself. Um, But, I mean, he just had such an incredible voice. You you were prepared to go through all this hassle um, because it it was just such a pleasure in in the end, Um, but not necessarily at the time. Right, right.
0: So, Decca... As a company, what, what was their motivation? Was it purely business or or was it a company that had been set up on, on musical principles and
1: uh, interests? Well, that's, that's an interesting question. Um, I think when I joined Decca, classical music was never considered to be a money-making arm of, of Decca. It, it was something which you would hope would break even and would tick along, and I dare say money... From the pop side, uh, you know, groups like the Moody Blues, middle of the road people like Mantovani, Frank Chaxfield, that money would possibly filter across and help finance some of the Decca projects. Uh, when I think of um, Das Rheingold, which was recorded in 1959, I mean people thought it was lunacy, uh, you know, recording uh, part of the Ring, never mind going on to record the whole Ring. Uh, But but fortunately, they were proved very wrong.
0: You're talking earlier about an in-house team for a recording company. Um, Makes me wonder as well about the venues you recorded in. Did you feel as though you had to get to know different acoustics and log that in the back of your head for when you'd go back there? Or did you find yourselves always in the same place? Or were you travelling internationally?
1: Uh, We were certainly travelling internationally, um, but there didn't seem to be a limit to where Decca um, needed to record, um, I and mean, I think probably the most um, luxurious case of that, if that's the right word, uh, was Montreal hmm. uh, when we did recordings there uh, um, with um, Charles Dutoit and the Montreal Symphony Orchestra, um, and that. Uh, Certainly, there was no expense spared for those recordings. Uh, DECA engineers who went out, uh, I was not one of them, but they did not find anywhere suitable in downtown Montreal in which to record. And somehow they came across this church in Saint Eustache, which is about a 40 minute drive out of Montreal. Uh, And after the Sunday service, a team would go in. It was a huge church all the pews would be removed, another wooden floor would be laid down, and then the orchestra would arrive on the Monday and you'd start your week's recording there. So Decca, really, they were very keen on getting the right acoustic and the right venue for the recording. Um, And certainly in London, the two or three most popular venues were Kingsway Hall, uh, principally, which is just at the bottom of Southampton Row and, and uh, just outside the city of London. Um, Walthamstow Assembly Hall um, and Watford, uh, Watford Town Hall. Um, and I think Kingsway is. Was-
0: so these are all famous, aren't they, as recording venues, but not as not as concert venues.
1: So no, it's, that's it's right. intriguing, isn't um, it? I, I would say... There were very few concert venues that we recorded in because we just didn't think they were good enough. But the Concertgebouw uh, was certainly one which, I mean, that's an amazing building both to record in when there's no public there and to go to a concert there is equally fabulous.
0: Now, why don't you describe the sort of team that's involved and the resources needed for for a large scale orchestral recording, say compared with a string quartet, you've just... Spoken about a team going out from Decca, Sounds like a lot of work involved.
1: Well, that side of it, uh, the preparation of the studio, um, in the case of Montreal, yes, there is a lot of work. Um, but most places you arrive, uh, uh, for instance, Baltimore, uh, somewhere I've worked uh, quite a lot, um, and there is a, a team, a you know, backstage team there who are fantastic. They will help load all the equipment in. Um, you will then set it up with your assistant engineer, um, and it's um, yeah, it's all fairly straightforward. Uh, obviously with a, a string quartet or a, a solo pianist or something like that, you can do that all on your own, really, because you don't need the, the second engineer. Although, if you're abroad, there would always be a second engineer because you, you would either have a driver driving the equipment Um, or the second engineer would be the driver Um, but certainly in the UK which is where I'm based uh, yeah I I would go and make a recording and if something horrendous happened yeah you could ring up and somebody could drive down or catch a train and take over for you.
0: Well let's move on from that and talk about the sound you're looking for in itself because I'm I'm trying to think of uh, different analogies for the situations you you find yourself in and it almost sounds crudely like saying you need to be a, um, a fine, detailed artist for string quartet, solo pianist, etc. But you're painting on a much bigger canvas when it comes to recording a huge symphony orchestra. How do you prioritize what you're trying to get in the sound, and um, can you over-engineer things
1: like I, that? Yeah, I believe you can, and I think it's very sad today that. Uh, more and more microphones tend to be used uh, because that inevitably makes the sound flatter in terms of perspective. Um, And I don't know, it just makes it sound two-dimensional instead of three-dimensional. And sometimes you've got, well, all the time, you've got to trust the conductor to balance the orchestra and, and the musicians to balance themselves as well. So I think that's really crucial. And it's so easy these days that the the trend is for musicians to be more involved in, oh, can we remix this afterwards? And you think, well, why can't you get it right now? And there's no guarantee remixing afterwards is gonna cure the problem. If you've got an orchestral session and the brass is just hitting it for six, um, there's no good afterwards saying, oh, well, we'll take the brass mic out because you'll then find, actually, the brass are leaking into the woodbin mics, they're leaking into the string mics, and unless you said something to the conductor at the time, you're never going to remedy the situation. Uh, and I think that is one um, of the sort of spin-offs of recording straight onto two-track. You know, there's no remixing possible, possible afterwards anyway. Um, so you've got to get the balance right. So you have to liaise with the conductor. And quite often, you know, if you say, "Oh, we can't hear enough second clarinet," the conductor will say, "Oh, actually, I can't either." So, you know, the conductor will then have a chat with the second clarinet, and the problem will be solved.
0: Yeah, so so many times you you can listen to a recording, and the second oboe, the first oboe, whatever is sitting in your lap, and you think, "Well, I've never heard it like that," and um, that's an artificial re-engineering of the situation isn't it somebody else's attempts at bringing forth what they
1: no absolutely but well, you want to try and maintain the perspective um hmm. and then maybe if you need to redress the balance you can help a little bit um, but i think there are definite boundaries beyond which you think hang on someone's got their finger on a fader here and they're just whacking up the level of a particular one <laughs> Is that how you listen to music? No, how I'm having to say it isn't how I listen to music, although it's quite shocking. The number of live performances I've heard, and I think, oh, God, there was an edit there.
0: <laughs> how much time do you spend thinking about sound? Or how much time have you spent in your life thinking about sound? Do you, do you go to bed at night thinking in, in, in sounds and how you can
1: redistribute I wouldn't say quite that fanatical but I mean sometimes some days you may finish a session and feel particularly smug or you may finish thinking oh gosh you know how can we make this better it's not really as good as I would like and sometimes you come back the next day and you think oh gosh this is actually this is all right or conversely this is not quite as good as I thought Um, but it's difficult there are so many facets to the sound um yeah, the temperature the humidity the musicians the quality of the instruments how they get on um and the influence the producer may have over it for instance and, and of course your influence as well um so yeah there, there are lots of uh, lots of parts of the equation that need to be sort of equalized and sorted out
0: hmm. Well, now you describe yourself as retired, although I know you have a, a couple of projects yeah. you're you're seeing through, and, and good for you on that. But has your attachment to the industry, um, to the process of making recordings, has that grown over the years? And do you have any sort of mission to to keep classical music in front of people?
1: Well, it, practically, I think it's difficult for me to do, although. I live in a little village, and people say, "Oh, you know, you, you, we must have a recorded music society here." So maybe I will do that. But the the only thing with that is, of course, one's playing music to older people like myself, and you want to introduce younger people into the joys and, and the excitement, the thrills, and the beauty of classical music.
0: Do you think that's an aspect, though, of the industry that 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 you know we can't? People criticise us because we're constantly, if you like reinventing the wheel in terms of another cycle of beethoven symphonies another cycle of another set of this another mile or whatever um but there is validity in that sort of regeneration isn't there that it keeps its new and to an extent fresh in front of a new audience potentially
1: i couldn't agree more uh, and quite often uh, i mean the case in point was the Beethoven symphonies that I did with David Zinman in Zurich with the Zurich Tom Haller Orchestra um and we did I think it was four and five were the first ones and I said to the producer Chris Hadler I said oh "Gosh, what on earth are we doing this for uh, we've recorded these you know on on original instruments with large symphony orchestras and we did the first take, and suddenly we thought, my goodness, well, this is, again, it was a revelation. And I think different conductors, orchestras, and generations do bring different things. I mean, maybe Beethoven, uh, I think he's a composer that you can do a lot with, that you won't have heard somebody else do before, which I think makes Beethoven very special. Um but these recordings, as I say, it was it was like listening to Beethoven's Fifth, which we've all heard a zillion times. It was like listening to it for the first time. And you think, gosh, that was really good.
0: So I often ask my guests about Funny moments in their careers and funny moments perhaps in recording sessions for you. Um, and I always have to remember to press record when I start these interviews. Has that ever
1: been a moment for you when you thought, Oh god, I didn't press the magic um, button? Happily, not for me, but it has happened. Um, but uh, thankfully, a lot of the times are at the end of takes when you don't want to stop the tape machine and you either get amusing comments or, I mean, one classic thing, we were recording Messiah uh, with King's College, Cambridge, and there was a bug going round. And one of the senior choristers said he was not feeling very well, and it was a fairly major chorus. And Stephen Cleabury said, look, you know, can you just sort of, we need to get this in the cab. And the boy, you know, sang with the choir. Uh, and we got to the end and then suddenly there was this horrendous vomiting sound and it splattered <laughs> on the stone and oh, there were sort of groans from people but he was very professional this boy he actually made it to the end of the take but my first reaction was to my colleague who was tape operating and I said you haven't stopped the tape have you he said no and I do have a recording of that
0: well, that leads me beautifully into another point. You're talking about the the tape operator and things like that. So you must have seen lots of major changes in the industry. And um, uh, did some of them catch you by surprise? Were they welcome changes? I think they
1: were welcome changes. The The change to digital initially was, uh, was not smooth, I would say. There were things that you couldn't do initially. In the digital domain which you could do in analog um but that was fairly short-lived i mean i think after two or three or four years somehow the technology caught up and now of course you look back on days of analog uh with an editing block and a razor blade and sticky tape and it looks like something out of the flintstones whereas when you edit today you can audition the join if you don't like it you can alter parameters you can maybe move it a semi quaver earlier or later um or or a bar later or whatever so it's it's far more refined what you can do now and and much better
0: Hmm. i read occasionally about microphones i don't understand how any of this magic works it's all funny, mysterious stuff that I leave you guys, you boffins, to sort out. Um, but I read about microphones that have been around since like, the Second World War or something and are revered and, uh, and uh, sought after, and replicas are incredibly expensive. So the pointy end of your business um, still has things from well into the last century, but the the method of capturing the music from analogue to digital has changed and, and keeps changing. What is it about microphones that's so special?
1: That's a, a good question and a hard one to answer. Uh, microphone technology hasn't really changed a huge amount uh, other than, um, I suppose, until the 60s, the microphones had valves in them. And then gradually, as you got into the 70s, Uh, they became transistorised. So that's the one thing that has changed uh, markedly. But the actual capsules um, and the bodies, they're all pretty much the same. Um, And you're right, some of the older vintage microphones still make a fabulous sound. Um, But then there are equally good modern microphones which have even quieter background noise and, and lower distortion figures. I mean, the the, um, sort of lifeblood, I think, of the Decker sound, certainly with orchestral recordings, was the Neumann M50. Um, And I don't know, if you received one today to evaluate, you would probably stick it on the test bench, run some tests on it, measure the third harmonic distortion, the background noise, and you'd think, I'm sorry, this is... Absolutely not on, and yet somehow, when there's music involved, it sounds fabulous. It's a mic that you feel there's no bottom end limit and there's no upper end limit. It just it will record music, you know, the, the bats could hear, and I don't know what sort of animals hear very subterranean frequencies, but it, it's that kind of. Um, open a, a mic and, and uh, all-embracing mic.
0: So that's a mystery that'll that'll remain. Uh, such uh, they're willing partners, though these old microphones is what you're saying. Yes, yeah. So what do you see as the future for the classical music recording industry?
1: That's a difficult question. Um, I mean, part of me feels I've seen the very best of it, and for that I am really grateful. I'm not sure that these excursions... I mean, the the flavour of the month now is Dolby Atmos. So you can play stuff... What on earth is that? Oh, gosh. You can play stuff back on seven loudspeakers and two subwoofers and goodness knows what. And I think for some things, it may sound absolutely wonderful. But really, we're just about getting the music across. And if you happen to have the most wonderful home cinema room that you can put all this stuff in yes it may sound better if you're listening to uh, a huge choral work recorded in a cathedral then you will certainly feel you are totally immersed in this building but i think if you're listening to solo piano you know to have it in seven channel surround sound i'm just not sure is really going to be of any benefit to the music it's, it's a gimmick, I, I think. Mm.
0: And I think as well, you were talking about different companies having in-house engineers, producers that created a family sound, as it were. And that has largely gone now, and you're you're all working, you guys are working as freelancers, essentially. So a lot of it is, thankfully, artist-driven, but it then goes to, say, a boutique recording company, Record company, whatever you want to call it, and that's marvelous. But it does mean that you don't, you don't necessarily identify a particular sound, and and it's like orchestras. The more we hear of orchestras around the world, the more anonymous they become. Yeah. The more the same they become, and I think that's a shame in so many ways. We've lost this um, uh, this spirit of um, uh, ownership of uh, an attachment to particular sounds like your favorite sports club you know they all kick a ball around on a a football field but my team is my team and yours is yours etc it used to be the same with conductors used to be the same with orchestras and record collecting as well that's that's not there anymore is it
1: it is it's disappearing a bit um and there are engineers out there who i think are bucking that trend fortunately um but it's, um, no, it, it's everything just becomes a sort of, uh, as you say, it's a similar kind of, similar kind of sound. Um, orchestras don't quite have the signature that, that you expect them to have. Um, and that's, that's, yeah, it's difficult. And I think a lot of it is to do with the recording and the way that recordings are made and, and remixed and, and polished afterwards. And you think, well, Sometimes when you make a recording and the balance isn't absolutely 100%, you know, sometimes things may be a bit too loud, it makes it feel live. And therefore it gives it a certain frisson and a certain electricity. When everything's very coiffured and and carefully mixed, you don't get that sense of danger that, that this whole thing could just go absolutely mental in a moment. Uh, it's all under control and somehow you don't want to be under control you want to know that it can go completely berserk and just whisk you up into it that must be an aspect of the the sort of
0: excitement of what you do that that has kept you going in it so long because um, you'll be going along to places and recording the same sort of music over and over again but it's the moment that you're capturing that that's live and exciting
1: it's, it is, uh, but it's where you get uh, producers like Andrew Keener, who will encourage, you will actively encourage musicians to turn that same corner in a different way, because something may happen the next time you do it, which is just unrepeatably magical. And you think, oh, God, you know, that, that, that just sounds like a live bit of electricity, And that is, I think that's a skill, trying to get that uh, electrostatic kind of tension uh, through, uh, you know, a a wooden box with a hole in it, or two wooden boxes with a a hole in, uh, because that's what you're listening to, essentially, or, or, you know, some headphones.
0: That's wonderful. So coming towards the end of this fascinating chat, I want to ask you, what is the one thing professionally that you're most proud of
1: that is very hard um, and it may vary from day to day which is not the answer you want at all um, i mean certainly the it, it's always lovely to be part of a project from the start and i felt very much that uh, David zimmerman and the Tom Haller, for instance, were such a project um, because they were not really on the map and of course with them we did Beethoven, Schumann, Mahler, Strauss, um, and we had a, a good relationship and it's a good orchestra with a good hall. So, you know, that was destined, I think, to be, to be great. Um, when I joined Decca, I was very much aware that the pioneering work somehow had been done uh, and that I was unlikely to find an incredible new microphone technique which would light up the industry. Um, So I would say that that's a relationship which I'm particularly happy with. Um, Both my sons were choristers at King's College, Cambridge, and gosh, it was a privilege both to record the choir, which I did for, for 20 years or so, um, and to be able to go to services there. Um, the one, uh, or one of the sort of spin-offs of, of this industry, you work in some incredible buildings. Um, and of course in this country you may be working in old cathedrals but at King's College Cambridge is such a wonderful building to work in it, it's it is a privilege I can't stress that enough but I think um, there are two other recordings which I really love and still sound good even when I come back to them and they were recordings we did in Winchester Cathedral with Winchester Cathedral Choir and the Wayne Fleet Singers, the Bournemouth Symphony Orchestra and David Hill. And one disc was of um, Parry and Stanford and the other disc was Vaughan Williams uh, and Walton. And the music making in that space is just fantastic. And the impact uh, it has uh, was tremendous. Uh, And Uh, those are two recordings which are particularly close to my heart I would say
0: that sounds wonderful and
1: but having said that I really enjoyed the recordings I've done with you so uh, well of course Um, but that goes without saying And, and they I would like to think people will listen to those in 50 100 years time and think gosh these are still good wouldn't that be
0: nice? I almost got you killed on one occasion as well, I seem to remember, that should go down in posterity as part of this interview. It's a good job you're a good runner. I remember crossing a road with you one, one night, and I said, yeah, let's go. And a car came around the corner and nearly wiped us out. So I want to apologize publicly for the <laughs> indiscretion of mine, but uh, you're, you're a, a very fast man on your feet. Oh, thank you. <laughs> okay, now, look, a final question. And uh, you can fudge this one as much as you like. Okay. Um, But what would you want to be remembered for most when you're not here?
1: Um, Do you mean uh, personally, just as an individual? Yeah. Um, Well, I would like to be thought of as a team player, and I would like to think that I've managed to pass whatever information I've managed to glean over the last 50 years in the industry to other people. And even if it's the sort of information I think, well, actually, that didn't really work very well. So I'm not going to do that because I've seen that with other colleagues at DECA. They would do things and you think, oh, no, I'm not going to do that. It hasn't worked for me. But then there will be other things that they did. And you think that is really useful. I must remember that. So I, I hope that I've been able to pass on useful tips um, and make decent tea and coffee. <laughs>
0: I can vouch for all of that. And uh, <laughs> Simon, I want to wish you the, the happiest of pseudo-retirements. And thank you. Thank you very much for this interview. It's been great.
1: It's been a pleasure. Thank you
0: very much for asking me. Thank you. The wonderful Simon Eden. The man behind the controls on many of our favourite recordings. One of the most fascinating and moving projects currently in the classical music world is the Violins of Hope. This collection of remarkably restored string instruments tours the world to various orchestras and cities. It tells the story of the Holocaust through a totally new prism. My next guest will be one of the restorers of the instruments and their custodian, Avshii Weinstein. It's a podcast you won't want to miss. I'm Andrew Constantine, and you've been listening to A Stick With A Point.